Welcome to Inspiration Rising. I'm your host, David Trotter, and we're here to inspire you to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. In 2008, Neil Pasricha had a brutal year. And in response, he started a blog called 1000 Awesome Things, where he wrote about something that was awesome every single day, like the first bite into chewing gum or flipping over your pillow to the cool side. Well, the site exploded with traffic, and it soon turned into a book called The Book of Awesome, which was a number one international bestseller for 142 weeks in a row. Neil has now written multiple best-selling books, and his next book comes out today, November 5th, 2019, and it's called You Are Awesome, How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life, and it focuses on how to cultivate resilience in our lives. Neil has an infectious enthusiasm for life and intentional living, and you're going to love my conversation with him. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Neil Pasricha. Well, Neil, thanks so much for taking some time to hang with us today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Thank you for all the work you do and all the all the beautiful art you put out into the world. Yeah. Well, I know looking back, 2008, one of the worst years of my life, uh, without a doubt. And it sounds like 2008 was a pretty tough year for you. So um, take me back to that year and... I also know you started something to kind of cope with that situation in your life. So tell us what happened and what you did to cope with it. Sure, absolutely. Well, I think 2008, uh, for those that may or may not remember, it was hard for everybody because first of all, it was, you know, the economic recession kind of cracked everything open. Um, The stock market dived, which of course has a huge impact on a lot of people's livelihoods. People lose jobs, people lose incomes, people lose nest eggs. And so for me, on top of that sort of layer of ugliness, was two big, huge things. One is my wife of two years told me one night after work that she did not love me anymore and she did not want to be married to me anymore. And although she was probably right, I can say from the the future, at the time I was like in total shock. Like I, I, of course, loved her and wanted to be married to her. We just bought a house. We're talking about having kids. Like I was stunned. And on top of that, I didn't have time to even process the shock because my best friend took his own life. And that mm-hmm. happened just just days after I heard wow. that my marriage was going to end. Wow. And so, yeah, it was like a, a an extreme, it was an extreme set of events. And yeah. my friend Chris, you know, and, and I don't know if you know this or, or not, Dave, but, you know, suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death in this country. And number two for kid, for people under age 29. Mm-hmm. So it's like, we're not talking, we're just not talking about it enough. We, we sweep it under the rug. The, the newspapers are full of people, you know, murders, but actually our suicide rate is double our murder rate, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, but I, I didn't know all this at the time. All I knew was I lost my best friend. I lost my wife. I lost my marriage. I lost my house. I lost my social connection with a lot of people. Yeah. And I did was you, in our, did you, yeah. did you fight for your, marriage you know what I mean like like everybody experiences no. that in a different way. <laughs> is it just kind of like okay she doesn't want to be a part of this I guess we're done well well people ask me that today they're like did you guys go to couples therapy did you what did you try to do and I said I said a couple things here one is there were some signs that that things were not going well so a couple times she tried to broach the conversation I don't think I was ready to hear it mm. and two um she was she met someone else so, um, 
I don't talk about that too much just because I'm trying to be, you know, respect, sensitive and respectful to her. And, and I, I don't judge her for it, but she, she had developed a chemistry type of connection with somebody else. Mm-hmm. So therefore it was clear that it was not going to work because she, she was becoming aware of her emotions to somebody else. Yeah. And by the way, again, from, from the future, I can say it's great that that happened because she's now living a happy life and has children with, with somebody else. And, and so am I. But mm-hmm. at the time, I had nothing. I was like, devast- I lost 40 pounds just due to stress. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. People at work thought, they were like, you look great, man. What's your secret? I'm like, mm-hmm. just stress. So I start this blog. That's the, that's the coping <laughs> mechanism mm-hmm. you hinted yeah, at. Yeah. And, and the blog is called 1000awesomethings.com. Mm-hmm. And so for a thousand straight days, which is a long time, I wrote an entry on my blog every day about something small that was awesome, like the smell of a bakery or wearing sweatpants all day, which I'm doing today, <laughs> by the way, or, you know, uh, you know, finding $5 in your old coat pocket or getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding mm-hmm. or flipping to the coals out of the pillow you know, I, it was just stuff like that. And I, and I wrote an essay about it and I posted it and lo and behold, the blog took off. It mm-hmm. hit, it eventually hit. Nobody read it, of course, at the beginning, but eventually it took, got some traction. A big, few big websites started covering it. It was on the front page of like reddit.com and stuff. And then what happened was um, I won an award for like best blog in the world, which doesn't even sound real, but it is. <laughs> And I go to New York City and I walked in a red carpet and I'm winning this award from the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences for best blog. And then I come home and, and 10 literary agents are waiting to turn 1000awesomethings.com yeah. into the Book of Awesome. Sure. So you asked about 2008. Well, the Book of Awesome, my first book came out in 2010. Mm-hmm. It's all about gratitude, obviously, and using these small, simple pleasures as essentially like a rope ladder when we're struggling with things as, as I did it myself. And it's funny because again, I'm talking from the future now and you're asking me about something a while ago. Sure. The, the most common feedback I get on the book of awesome is this helped me through my divorce. This helped me through wow. the loss of my, my husband. This helped me through the cancer I was fighting. Like, honestly, I have no idea how people can sense through the words that I wrote those things at the time of my own struggle. Because yeah. nowhere in the book of awesome do I say, oh, I was going through a divorce or I, I don't even mention it once. I, yeah. I, it was not about me. But yet somehow through the words and the power of language, I guess, or people's own innate sort of perception skills, which we all have sure. a very finely attuned BS meter these days, sure. they have used it on the same exact emotional state that, that, that I was in. And so I found that so fascinating. Mm, awesome. Uh, literally awesome. Yeah. So good. So you wrote a book on gratitude, which is the book of awesome. You also book wrote a book on the subject of happiness. Yes. Why, why were you interested in writing a book now on the subject of resilience, which is your mm-hmm. new, your new book? Yeah, sure. So years after that divorce, I ended up meeting somebody new. Her name is Leslie. We fell in love. I'm saying a very long story in a very short amount of sentences. We fell in love. She moved in. She moved in with me. We got married. And on the flight home from our honeymoon, which was in Southeast Asia, she got sick. And so she like on the flight. So then we have a layover. She's looking for a pharmacy. She needs to lie down. She's like, I don't think I can get on the plane. So I'm like, yeah, it's a 13 hour flight home. I don't blame you, you know? And she's like, why don't we just get on? I think I can make it. So we go on the plane and it takes off. It goes like above the clouds. She goes to the airplane bathroom at the front of the plane. She comes like a few minutes later, she comes back to our seats and she says, 
I'm pregnant. See, Whoa. she bought the pregnancy test in the airport pharmacy in right. Malaysia. Okay. She did the pregnancy test in the airplane, wow. in the bathroom. She did the pregnancy test right there. That's why she said I'm pregnant. She just found out. She had the pregnancy. She had the like little digital thing. She's like, here sure. it is. You know? And then I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to have kids. And so I wrote The Happiness Equation, which is the book you mentioned on happiness, essentially as a 300-page love letter to my unborn child on how to live a happy life. Honestly, David, it comes from kind of like me worried, like what if anything happens to me before they become Hmm. a teenager, before they become a 20-something and they don't get to hear dad's advice. So, And I'd been researching this for years because of course with the success of the Book of Awesome, people are all asking me how to be happy and what's the science say and blah, blah, blah. So I was like, I have a lot to say on this. And so my last book, The Happiness Equation, um, is all about happiness and it was originally a letter to my kids. Now you're asking, well, why'd you write about resilience? So first of all, classic author, especially nonfiction author, I'm like, oh, now I realize that my books are not all about awesomeness or not all about gratitude. They're about intentional living. Like I, mm-hmm. I'm really fascinated by this idea that our lives are only 30,000 days long. Mm-hmm. You know, that's very short. And how do we make sure that they count? And so gratitude was the first book. Happiness is the last one. And this one's about resilience. Okay. Here's why I think resilience is the biggest issue of our day today. Because you can press a button and a car will pick you up at work. Uh, your phone will entertain you on the way home. You can press another button and order food. And when you, by the time you get to your house, like your food's waiting for you on your porch. Sure. We are living like kings. Right, we right. Living, we are living in the era of the most infinite abundance ever. We live in the best time ever to be alive. At the same time, and you may or may not know this, our rates of anxiety, loneliness, suicide, and depression, and mental illness have all skyrocketed. And I don't mean they—I don't mean they're going up. I mean they're skyrocketing. I mean the most recent data we have on on anxiety, especially in women, especially young women, is that it went up thirty percent, thirty percent in the last five years. You know, it usually goes up like one percent. Like this is huge. And so my argument is, this is because because the world is so abundant, we no longer have the tools to handle failure or even perceived failure. Mm -hmm. These days when we fall, we just lie on the sidewalk crying. We're turning into an army of like porcelain dolls. We aren't tough. We aren't mentally tough. And I'm including myself in this. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm just as likely as everyone to be like, Oh no, my picture only got two likes on Instagram. I guess I have no friends. <laughs> sure. You know, this is, this is what we do. We, we prop you know, we kind of create this terrible picture. That everything's going wrong. Because we don't have the school, we don't have the we don't have the education and the musculature really to handle um, and navigate failure. And so, you are awesome. My new book, which is has the purposeful subtitle, by the way, "How to Navigate Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life," is all about resilience. It's all about how to grow this muscle that I'm arguing we all desperately need today. Mm-hmm. I think it's funny. Obviously, it's part of your brand, the term awesome, that you titled the book or your publisher did, You Are Awesome, uh, when that message is actually, I think, part of the uh, underlying message of fragility. Like everybody thinks they're awesome. And then when I slightly feel like I'm not awesome, then my world falls apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, 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 the word that popped into my mind is like anathema, if I'm saying that right. You know, it's like, isn't it the opposite of how people feel? And actually, that's partly why, and I won't blame my publisher. I actually was the one that thought this would be a good title is because 
right now when I talk to people, I give speeches, I'm in colleges, I'm in universities, I'm talking to parents of, of children, I'm talking to parents themselves as they go through career changes or losing a job or losing a relationship. The underlying theme I hear is people thinking to themselves, David, I'm not awesome. I right. stink. I right. suck. I'm not right. worthy. And so part of the reason I titled the book You Are Awesome is because I'm trying to reclaim that sentiment that I think we all need to have and we need to remind ourselves about and we need to we need to tell ourselves that we're awesome because we truly are and we have forgotten it and sometimes i think all we need is a few kind of guideposts and like you know with sort of pieces of wisdom uh, bodies of research personal stories that help remind us why we're why we're all works in progress and why we're actually pretty good and so the the when you open you are awesome it literally is the set of nine whittled down carefully curated seven times edited pieces of wisdom that I was able to develop in my own life and which I think my kids and anyone reading it will benefit from. So yeah. that's kind of where the title came from. And to your point, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, it would be really hard for me, the guy who's written, you know, five books and 10 calendars and three journals with the word awesome to like use a different word. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm beholden to my, the torture chamber that I've created for myself. You of know course. what I'm saying? Of course. So I do want to jump into those nine secrets because I want to pique our listeners' interest to get and read the book. But I want to jump into a few of these secrets just to get you to tease them out for us. Yes. Uh, Chapter one is called Add a Dot, Dot, Dot. Now, what is it about an ellipsis that (laughs) is so powerful? Well, here's the thing. You know, I I was starting in this place where I thought, you know, someone's going to get handed this book when they're going through cancer or when they're going through, they just lost their spouse or they just lost a child or they, you know, they lost their job or something huge just happened. And when that happens to people, we get stuck. We actually don't move. We project forward and we think my life is over. We put a period on the end of our sentences. And so in this chapter, chapter one, I use my mom's story of being born frankly, the wrong gender in a terrible time in East Africa under a dictator, um, being forced into an arranged marriage at a young age to a guy she met once before the wedding, Mm. being shipped off to another continent where she knew nobody in a language that she didn't really speak. It wasn't her first language Mm -hmm. in a city with all 100% white people and she was brown. And so she had no culture. She was also culturally neutered. And I use her story intertwined with the research around the ellipses and the research around um, keeping your options open to show people that when you are going through major life struggle, the key there is to add a dot, 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 to turn the period that you perceive at the end of your sentence to one of simply continuing to move, continuing to breathe, continuing to operate. If you can switch that to an ellipses, you can keep moving. And of course, I share the history of the ellipses, um, you know, why that, what that actually means in practice, some research studies behind it. And I also share a word that enables this thinking, which is the simple three letter word yet, Y E T. People like me, like you, like everybody, we talk so negatively to ourselves. You know, you, you, um, you, if you fail a test, you say, uh, I'm not creative. You know, you, you get a bad health record. You know, your doctor says you have high cholesterol. You think, I, I, I don't take care of my body or I, I don't exercise. You know, you, you, people talk like this to themselves. And so I'm saying, if you just said the word yet, that's what I saw my mom doing. That's what the ellipsis does. It actually helps you see the little sliver of light between the door and the frame after the latch closes. 
So it's not, I'm creative. It's, I'm not creative, dot, 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 yet. It's not, uh, you know, I don't take care of myself. It's like, I don't take care of myself, dot, 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 yet. It's gone to the point now, David, where I've actually trained my kids not to say, I don't like broccoli. They just say, I don't like broccoli yet. <laughs> and I know it sounds funny to hear a three-year-old tell me like he doesn't like broccoli yet, but actually what he's doing in his own brain is quite a powerful little scientific trick. He's enabling his mind to, to um, hold the idea that he might in the future like it. And that's what I'm trying to teach people to do. It's the very first secret of the book. So, you know, it, it, we kind of start from the bottom, as it were, when people, someone that can't move or can't function or can't breathe or can't operate. And that's what I saw my mom doing. When she came to Canada, she was like, I don't, I don't know how to live in Canada yet. I don't know right. how to, I don't know how, I don't eat meat yet. She started eating meat because there's, you can't really be vegetarian in the 60s in, in uh, you know, the suburbs of Toronto. There was like, what are you going to do? Pick the bacon bits out of your Caesar salad? Like that's all you, you know, what are you, <laughs> you couldn't do anything. The barbecue has no veggie dogs, you know? So she just kept saying, well, I don't, I don't, dad wants to go ballroom dancing. Well, I don't ballroom dance yet. And honestly, that type of thinking, as simple or as tri- as it may sound, is steeped in deep scientific research that shows when you hold on to the idea of the ellipsis and the word yet, you enable your future self to open that door one day. And that is such a powerful dose of forgiveness and of liberation that you can do for yourself. And mm-hmm. all it takes is that three-word phrase and introducing it into your mind. This is what happens, right? People say, people say, oh, why'd you go into law school? It's like, I'm not good at anything else. Or why you marry that guy then if you don't like him? It's like, well, I know, you know, I, I, I'm really no good at dating. No, I'm not good at anything else yet. I'm not good at dating yet. Let yourself be open to what your own future could bring you if you allow it to come. Mm-hmm. Keeps the door open, basically. Exactly. So, like you said, it's just a very uh, early first step you know, for someone just to go, okay, let me just keep that door open. In chapter three, you, it's called see it as a step, which ties into the concept that you're saying. You talk about uh, the end of history illusion. Yes. Um, And so when are we tempted to believe this illusion? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, tell us what that illusion is. When are we tempted to believe it? And what's another option? Sure, exactly. So in this chapter, I talk about my divorce, which I've mentioned briefly, and how I thought, oh, well, I will never find anyone new. I will always be single. I will, you know, I, I had no resilience to think of myself as someone worthy of dating. I actually thought I'm ugly, I'm unlovable, I'm, I'm a horrible person, right? And un- unfortunately, what the science teaches us, and this is a great piece of research from Daniel Gilbert, uh, from Harvard. He's the author of Stumbling on Happiness, and he teamed up with a group of researchers, and they, they interviewed 19,000 people. And they asked them two basic questions. First question was, hey, what did the last 10 years of your life look like? And the second question was, so what do you think the next 10 years of your life is going to look like? No matter what age the people were, whether they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, whatever, they all said the last 10 years of their life was this tempestuous portrait of changing relationships and careers and moving cities and like an, an endless array of like, you know, ups and downs. And But then when they were asked what the next 10 years of their life would look like, again, regardless of age, demographic, or background, they all said, oh, I think it'll be about the same as I am today. 
I don't mm-hmm. think I'll, I'm definitely going to still be with Sally and I for sure will still be at the same job. And like, well, I'm definitely not going to, what are you talking about? The whole point of the research study proved that we have a human tendency in our brains to think that today is the day history ends because mm-hmm. we can see the staircase. And I use this metaphor in the book of the staircase because we can see the staircase behind us, right? You can see like, there's my prom and there's the day I met Sally and all that stuff. You, you can see it, so you know it. But in the future, you can't see the stairs above you. You can't see the path you're going on. So you therefore confuse the possibility of change with the probability of change. This is an important point. It means that you think, after you get fired, say, you think, I'll never find another job. But actually, you will. You just cannot picture it because you can't see it. Mm-hmm. And so the end of history illusion is a, is a frankly, a, 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 it's based in neuroscience. It says we all have the human tendency to think history stops today. Mm-hmm. It's not so bad if you're flying high, but if you're suffering through something, it can feel totally detrimental. And so how do we use it? Okay, this was your second question. You're like, okay, well, how do we use that to our advantage? Well, for this part, I share a story about how I used to have a terrible job. Um, I was essentially the HR person at Walmart who would go with managers into the meeting room and fire people. And I did not do the firing, but I had to coach the manager before on what to say and what to do. And then I had to help the associate, we called it. They didn't use the word employee. We had to help the associate who like was kind of having to pack up their trunk and like put the pictures in a box and they were crying and they were like, I'm never going to find another job. And like, I was working here 30 years and what am I going to do now? And this was at the corporate level, right? Not the store level, correct? Right. It was at the corporate level. So Mm -hmm. I worked as um, an HR manager in the head office uh, Mm -hmm. as one of my early roles at Walmart. I I was the director of leadership development there when I left uh, after 10 years there, but I'm talking about kind of one of my earlier roles. Sure. And, And it was a hard job because obviously emotionally it weighed on me. But the point of the story is that every time I bumped into somebody years later who had been fired from the company years before, guess what they all told me? I'm not kidding when I say this. They all said to me, David, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. If I hadn't got fired, I wouldn't have found this job at this small company that I love. I wouldn't have gone to Peru with my mom before she died. I wouldn't have been there for my daughter after she had her miscarriage. I wouldn't have decided I wanted to actually start up that business. I always told myself I would do, but I never... You know, I never did it. And then when I got fired, I was like, oh, now I have some severance money and I have time. So I'm going to start up my little, you know, ukulele importing business or whatever it is. Um, And by the way, I said ukulele importing business because I actually know a guy who said that exact phrase to me. I started up a a ukulele (laughs) importing business. I'm not joking. We actually have, where I'm talking to you now, I actually can see the ukulele on our wall hanging there. That's fun. That's fun. So so the point is, even though everyone said to me at the time, what am I going to do now? I'm, I've been here 30 years. I'll never find a job. Guess what? They all loved it in the future. This is the point of the end of history illusion. Today, I'm married to a woman named Leslie. We have three little boys, five and under. Honestly, thank goodness I got divorced. Like, mm. thank goodness. Because I could be unhappily married today. Mm-hmm. But instead, I'm happily married today with a woman I adore and who's the light of my life and with children that I could not imagine not being with. And so... Thank goodness I got divorced. And, and the crazy thing is, this is how it works in life around everything mm-hmm. for everybody because mm-hmm. of our tendency to catastrophize that we all, we all mm-hmm. think it's over sure, when sure. everything happens. When I think back about all the jobs or roles that I didn't get in that moment, I was super sad, depressed, thought I'd never find you know whatever I really wanted to do. Um, when I was at my lowest point in 2008, 
you know, I actually had um, a similar experience to you in 2008, but I was on the other side. I actually um, had an affair and I ended up moving in with that woman. Uh, and I was a pastor at the time. Neil, let me tell you, that does not go over well with a church congregation when you, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I resigned, of course. And um, this gal ended up leaving me and going back to her husband um, like 40 days later. And uh, at that point, I had lost my career that I had invested, you know, time, energy, money. It was my calling, my passion. And I had lost my wife and kids. And I had lost this woman that I had put all my, you know, the eggs in my the basket for. Uh, and I'm at rock bottom. What do I think? Life is over. Like life is over. I frankly, I didn't even want to live. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, it turns out now um, that's what eleven years. Eleven years later, uh, my wife and I just celebrated our twenty fifth wedding anniversary because we were able to reconcile and get back together. Uh, I have two amazing kids that I now spend a ton of time with and enjoy. They're uh, sixteen and twenty. And I am involved in some church stuff, but that's not the focus of my life. My focus is primarily on coaching, coaching people through these dark times in their life. And um, so I Which think, I'm assuming was partly enabled by your own navigating of that. Oh, without a right? doubt. Yeah, yeah you couldn't doubt. do it if you didn't if it if you didn't do it. <laughs> right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so every single thing, like you said, from the dark points to the things that we have losses. Um, it's so hard when we're in the midst of it to see any possibility of the staircase continuing upward. You know, it's like the staircase ends here. Uh, so, so beautiful. The end of history illusion. And yet it is just a next step. And that's one of the most powerful things we can say to friends and family in the midst of that darkness is, there will be a next step. You'll look mm -hmm. back on this way, this day, mm -hmm. and be just keep first add a dot, dot, dot to your point. What you did when you felt yep. like there was no hope or no joy or no purpose, you added, you kept breathing, you kept yep. moving. You just lost the woman you had an affair with. You lost her. You lost that apartment. You presumably at the time felt like you had lost your marriage. You'd lost your job. You could have thought this is a period, but instead you added a dot, dot, dot. You just kept breathing. No, and, I and, wanted. I wanted to add a period. Actually, I ended up um, with the help of a, a some close friends and a therapist. I ended up checking myself into a hospital for three days because I was in such a dark place that I wanted to add a period. I wanted to end my life because I felt like I didn't have any life left, you know. But it's only when we kind of have some people stabilize us and help go. Okay, this is not the end. It doesn't have to be the end. And I'll tell you, I don't. You know, you were in a different place in two thousand eight. But I had um, small kids at the time, and the only thing that prevented me from adding a period was I didn't want th that to be a part of their legacy. Mm -hmm. I didn't mm -hmm. want that to be a yeah. part of their to have had a father that took his own life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And how did you reconcile? You know, um, after I got out of the hospital, I of course had to you know moved several times, and um, I only had uh, a credit card that I was living on because I didn't have income. And I had this sense that I, I was supposed to turn the trajectory of my heart back toward my soon-to-be ex-wife. We had filed for divorce. And I told her, I said, you may not ever want to be with me. And I'm not asking to be with you. But I just want you to know that I'm going to be the best dad I could possibly be. I'm going to care for you in ways that I can care for you. And 
I just want you to know that. And so, um, man, I'll never forget meeting up with her at a park and taking full responsibility of what I had done and the humiliation. And, you know, it's just very humiliating because I was a very public person in that um, time and area because uh, the church had grown quite large. And so, yeah, it was just a matter of me turning the trajectory of my heart and going, I'm going to serve you and care for you as the mother of our kids. And if something, you know, if it comes together, great. Otherwise, I'm going to keep serving and loving you. Um, but it's only because of not buying into the end of history illusion, like you said, that I was able to do that. Well, and kudos on your tremendous uh, heart uh, for your vulnerability, for your openness, for your honesty, which, of course, helped create that conversation with your wife. But also, I know and I can hear in the conversation with you is what makes this podcast so enjoyable and listening to you so enjoyable and being because you're so vulnerable. So you share that and that makes you a better coach and it makes you a better better leader. And so there's actually a provocative uh, title in my book that the editor uh, actually wanted to take out originally. Uh, It's on page um, uh, 83. And it says, have you had enough one night stands? And it relates directly (laughs) to this conversation we're having because it was in like one of the advertising. It's funny. I I live in Toronto, Canada. And so they made like subway advertisements for this book, right? There's a big picture of you are awesome. And there's like highlights from the book. Anyway, in the U.S., they snipped out that line. How to, have you had enough one night stands? And in Canada, they let it. They let it in. So really? I don't know what that tells you about. Yeah, that maybe the Canadian culture is a little bit more liberal, and that was not like an eyebrow raising thing at all. But in the U.S., they were like, we can't put that on the title. Meanwhile, well, when, I, when, I'm actually, when I read it, by the way, when I read that, yeah. I was like, whoa, what is this? You know, Where's, it really exactly. pulled me in. You know, it's yeah. an interest peaker. That's the purpose yeah. of it. But actually, the point is. It's because I came across this amazing study that was published in The Telegraph where they interviewed people that were in stable, long-term, loving relationships with what they called the one. So if you find the one, the person that your soulmate, you know, the person that you're like, this is, I'm happily married and I couldn't imagine being with a better person. Those are the people they interviewed for the study and they asked all of them, so you're happily married. Yes, yes, I am. I mean, I don't even know if they had to be married, but they're with the person that they Sure. They love and whatever. And they say, so um, did you date? The, the, the interviewers are like, so did you interview? Did you date anyone before? And they're like, they're like, oh, yeah. Like I had like, you know, 10 boyfriends. And, and then they're like, oh, well, did you did you sleep with them? They're like, well, yeah, I slept with like seven of them. And they're like, oh, and did you anyone ever cheat on you? And they're like, well, yeah, like a couple guys did. And they're like, did you ever, did you ever cheat on? Anyway, the whole point of the study was they actually used a composite of all these interviews to map the average, the average road that the average person takes to finding the one. And mm-hmm. guess what? That road, and I'm going to actually read it to you right now because I think it's really interesting, is the average woman will kiss 15 people have seven sexual partners, four one-night stands, four disaster dates, three relationships less than a year, two relationships more than a year. They will fall in love twice, be heartbroken twice, cheat once, and be cheated on once, all before she finds a lifelong partner. And the stats for men are almost identical. I think they kiss like one more person and have a couple more sexual partners, but really it's about the same. And the point is, when you hear that, imagine you're talking to your kid, your kid's like, I don't know, 16 and they're like so dad i really want to meet the one and you're like yeah well have you had like you know 10 sexual partners six one night stands four disasters have you and the the kid would be like are you crazy like of course i never want to do that like that sounds horrible right 
you know, to get my heart broken repeatedly to, you know, all this stuff. But the point is, I'm not saying this is a should do, but the point is the average composite of the average person who has actually found the one is they have been through an average of that many steps. Meaning, so this is also related to the end of history illusion, meaning that it might be just that you don't have enough experience yet. Like it might just be that, you know, um, you it's kind of like the old adage, you know, the, and I don't know if you have this in, in the States, but in Canada, we have something called the turkey dump, you know, where people who date in high school go to university or college. And on the Thanksgiving weekend, when they first return home, they dump each other. It's called the turkey dump. Do <laughs> we you guys do not have, have that? that? We do not have that. No. Okay. I mean, so it, the, happens. It, it happens. It happens. But we don't call it that. Yeah. I don't know why that, cause it's like so cliche, but the point is, it's like, once you're, once you're realizing like, oh, I have to, you know, the, the road to romance actually really is rocky. Yeah. And part of what is building resilience is all about is just being aware of the fact that you might just be in a mode of your life or a moment of your life where that relationship that ended or that disaster date or that, or that one night stand that didn't go well or whatever, um, or even did go well, it, it might simply be part of the path you were on towards a future that you can't yet see. Sure, sure. Jeez, uh, I can just hear my mom going, "Well, David, I just pray that that doesn't happen to your kids." I just or David, I've just to... unsubscribed from your podcast. Yeah, yeah well, I'm not sure she. <laughs> I'm not sure she listens to begin with. But, uh, but yeah, that is that's so. It is so fascinating. All right, chapter uh, four. Um, you encourage us to lose more to win more. And this ties directly into the see it as a, as a step. Um, why are you such a fan of losing? Aha. Okay. Have you ever like talked to a wedding photographer? Like this is something I always am fascinated with. I'm like, if you see someone's wedding photos, you're always like, wow. Like, first of all, my friends look hotter and more beautiful than they ever have before. And even me, like I'm in some of the wedding photos. And I look great. And so I always have this fetish where I asked the wedding photographer, how'd you do it? How'd you take like these 50 amazing pictures that are going to capture this memory in this moment for this couple for the rest of their lives? This is going to be a picture they hang above their mantle till they're like 80 years old. And you know what? Every single wedding photographer always tells me the same exact answer. I just take way more pictures. Mm -hmm. I take a thousand pictures. So of course I'm going to have 50 good ones. I'm throwing away 95% percent right. of them just to find those 5%. So that's an interesting, that kind of stuck in my brain. The other thing that stuck in my brain was the fact that when I was a kid, there was no internet, there was no Wikipedia. So my dad bought me, um, I used to really love baseball. And so my dad bought me like the complete book of Major League Baseball statistics, which for a tiny nerd in the suburbs was like, <laughs> this became my Bible. Okay, yeah, not to yeah. you throw around, I don't mean to throw in the word Bible. No, I, just I get like, you, yeah. Right. And so then I, I look it up. I'm like, oh, okay, who has the most wins of all time? And it's a guy you've probably heard of named Cy Young, right? And of course, they named the Cy Young Award after him. And he's won 511 wins in baseball. And as I kept paging through this book, I mean, I'm not kidding. Like, I, the way people look at their cell phones before bed, like, I'd look at this thing before bed. One day I stumbled upon the most losses in baseball. And I was like, hey, that's weird. The guy with the most losses is Cy Young. Like he has 316 losses. Mm -hmm. hmm. And then I started looking through the book from a different lens. I was like, hey, wait a minute, who has the most strikeouts? And of course, it's Nolan Ryan, right? He's got 5,000 something strikeouts, 5,714. And then I'm like, hmm, well, that's the best thing you can do as a pitcher. What's the worst thing you can do as a pitcher? It's walking somebody. 
mm-hmm. right? So guess who has the most walks? It's Nolan Ryan. He has mm-hmm. 2,795. I'm like, interesting. When we look at models of success today, what we think we're looking at is someone who is super successful, someone who succeeded. Mm-hmm. Nolan Ryan, Cy Young, a wedding photographer. But actually, the lesson that I want to teach people is that actually what we're looking at is somebody who simply their greatest strength is navigating through failure. Mm-hmm. That actually is their biggest strength. You and I would take a picture. Oh, I, I'm not, I shouldn't speak for you. I would take three pictures at a wedding and I'd be like, these suck. But if I took a thousand, I'd probably find 50 good ones. Mm-hmm. I would never get on a major league <laughs> baseball pitching mound, but certainly I'd probably quit well before I, I, I attempted that many. They, they, these days they're always like, oh, Tom Brady has the most like complete passes or whatever. I'm like, I, I look up who has the most incomplete passes. Betcha it's Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. He just played the longest. This guy is okay with losing, with failing, with missing a pass. His biggest success is actually navigating into the future. And so I looked at my own life and I looked up the research related to this. And turns out there's a ton of supporting research on this. Um, uh, uh, one of the best interviews I discovered was by, have you heard of the newspaper, The Onion? Of course, yeah. Okay, right. So The Onion, you know, weekly comedy newspaper based originally in, in Wisconsin. Well, the former editor was a guy named Todd Hansen, and people used to always say to him, hey, how did you get to write jokes for a living? Like everyone wants to write funny jokes and you get paid for it. And he'd always say, do it for free for 10 years. Because mm-hmm. if you do it for free for 10 years, you will work through all the musculature required, which is resilience, in order to be okay with some being good, some being not. Some days you don't have any, you keep going. Okay, so I make the argument in this book, in this chapter, Lose More to Win More, that we are asking our graduates of universities the wrong question. These days when you go hear a commencement speech, people always say, do what you love, you know, find your passion, chase your purpose, blah, blah. No, that's not true. What we should be actually asking people in commencement speeches, and if you're listening, I will be happy to give this speech at your university, (laughs) is... No, no. The question isn't do what you love. It's do you love it so much that you can take the pain and the punishment with it? Mm-hmm. So if you really want to be a rock star, then are you okay with lugging a heavy amp through sticky, smoky bars at two in the morning on a Tuesday for seven years and practicing strumming the same three chord progression in your basement till your fingers get raw, till you nail it, till you can do it with your eyes closed, till you can do it while you sing, till you can do it while you're singing and people are talking or cheering in front of you. Can you do that? Not many people can do that. If you can take the pain and punishment that goes towards becoming a successful performing musician, then you will become a successful performing Mm -hmm. musician. Mm -hmm. It's just that the road to get there is so rocky that the vast majority of people will quit well before they do it. And for me as a writer today, you know, people say, oh, Neil, like, must be nice. You, you got your seventh book out or whatever, right? Like this, you are also my seventh book. But actually what they don't know, and although I'm, I tell them in this book, is no, no, I, I, I was, the, I had no, like I had no one when I was a kid. I, mm. I used to read and write every night from the time my parents and my sister went to bed till like midnight because I didn't mm-hmm. sleep very well and there was no internet. So I, I just developed the 10,000 hours earlier. And so this writing, if you ask my mom, is a function of me writing as a kid for 20 years without anyone seeing it or getting paid for it. Mm-hmm. So much of the, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, so lose more to win more is, could you go through the pain and punishment to lose, 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 so that, of course, the win comes at the end. Yeah. 
I love social media and yet social media has just, you know, allowed us to show the shiny parts, show the final moment of that rock star on stage and not the years and years and years of uh, practice and losses and challenges. Um, I wanted to take a side note because I've heard you talk about these three P's of social media that you find are challenging for us in this day and age. And I know that a lot of our listeners are moms of teenagers and older. Um, and I don't want to be anti-social media, but at the same time, I do like your insights on this to help us reframe um, and help us see be- beyond the shininess mm-hmm. of social media. So do you mind breaking yeah. those down real quick? Sure. Well, first of all, I am anti-social media. I personally think it's a, it's a huge scourge. And although I was just as enamored with Facebook as everybody was when it came out, because I got in touch with my own aunts and whatever, and from a foreign country, like I have a weird last name, right? My last name is Pasricha, Neil Pasricha. So I searched Facebook and found like 30 people on Facebook with the same weird last name as me from all over the world. So mm-hmm. I made a Facebooker called Pasricha's Pasricha's. We're everywhere, <laughs> you know, and like it turned into like this thousand person thing. And it was so fun. This was like 2006. Okay. Now I say there are three big problems and they all start with the letter P. The first one um, is physical. When we expose our brains to bright screens before bed, especially before bed, we don't produce melatonin overnight. So our resilience levels go down. So when we wake up in the morning, the first thing we want to do is turn to our phone. People say, oh, it's because my cell phone is my alarm clock. And I always say, go to Walmart. <laughs> They're $10. You know what I mean? Just buy an alarm clock. There's actually a, I can't remember who it is, but there's a CEO in the US, a really progressive CEO that's like actually handing out alarm clocks to his, his uh, employees now because yeah. for this exact purpose, it's like, He's trying to get people not to be like sleeping with their cell phone. Hmm. The other physical problem, of course, is that we're becoming a nation of hunchbacks. We are getting texting thumb. Like it's not good for you to add 60 pounds of pressure to your spine, which is what you're doing when you text. So the first P is, is physical. The second P is psychological. This is a big issue. We are social media tells us that everyone else is awesome. And it, kind of reminds you that you're not. Mm -hmm. So the way it does this is it showcases everybody else's greatest hits and you are left living your life in the director's cut version. By definition, as we live in this giant flattening 8 billion person community now, you will never, ever be the best at anything, ever. You will never get that feeling again, ever. You will never have the most followers. You will never have the most friends. You will never be the best basketball player in your school anymore the way you used to be because there's someone better on YouTube. Mm-hmm. You can't even finish a video game better than your friends in the basement anymore. I used to play Mario Kart and it was like, I got first. No, no, there's someone on YouTube who's like literally got it to the 10th of a second. You know, you can't, you can't beat the way that they can win. So you're like, oh man, like I suck. So psychologically, we're killing ourselves. We are telling ourselves that we stink over and over and over again. And it never ends. I mean, even Oprah thinks Justin Bieber has got more followers than her. You can be (laughs) Oprah and feel like a failure, okay? The third P, so I've already said uh, physical, and I've already said psychological. The third P is productivity. Um, According to McKinsey, we now spend 31% of our days bookmarking, prioritizing and switching between tasks, not actually doing anything, but simply deciding what we should be doing. Social media uh, and cell phones in general, to some extent, are killing our productivity. They are, they are, they are feeding us 
an endless array of dopamine-inducing distractions that are constantly stimulating us. Of course, I want to watch the new Saturday Night Live sketch or the best sketch mm-hmm. of the day or in the, in the latest highlight of the NFL game that was on last night that's like the one highlight you know, that everyone should watch. And did you see that one-handed catch that OBJ made? And you got to see it. Like It's feeding us an endless... Imagine like a little hose, like a hamster, <laughs> feeding into your mouth pellets that you just can't stop eating because they're so tasty. So how do you personally deal with social media like on a day-to-day basis? Are you on it at all? So here's what I do. Um, I have deleted social media apps, all, all of them, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, from my phone. So the first thing you got to do is get rid of the access point. And by the way, social media companies are smart. They will let you log in from your computer, but because you have to like log in on an actual computer, you will do it much, much, much less frequently. Okay. Cause I have to like go to my computer and log into Twitter. Okay. So that's the first thing to do is delete the apps. That's the first thing. The second thing is I was really serious when I said, don't sleep with your cell phone. I say to people, it doesn't matter where your cell phone is in your house. It matters where your charger is. I keep my charger in my basement. It's two levels below where I sleep. So in the morning, I'm like, I don't want to walk down two levels and my freezing cold boxers like into the basement to get my phone. I'll just check it later. Between here and there, there's the bathroom, there's the kitchen, there's breakfast, there's my kids. So I don't make it to check my cell phone, definitely not within the first hour or two of the day. Similarly, because I plug my phone in the basement at night, I'm like, oh, I'll just plug my phone and then I'll go read a book, okay? Or I'll hang out with my wife or whatever. I'll have a cup of tea. I put the cell phone somewhere, put the phone, put the, remember when the internet used to be like a box in everyone's basement? Put it back in the box in your basement. <laughs> okay. That's a huge, huge, huge thing behavior wise. We have to put our cell phone charges far, far away from us. The third thing is um, our phones and social media, of course, in general, have been designed to be what I call push devices. You need to change them into pull devices. A push device is anything that tells you anything it wants to tell you whenever it wants to tell you. Like the little 99 that hangs out in the corner of your Twitter feed or whatever. It's like you got 99 notifications. You've got this new thing happened to you. You've got so many things that it's trying to tell you text messages, alerts, notifications, emails, whatever. What you need to do is live full-time on your cell phone in airplane mode. That's what I do. I'm full-time in airplane mode. And then I'm choosing a few moments in the day, typically a morning once, maybe a lunchtime once, where I go off airplane mode. I experience the crazy feeling of getting a barrage of 17 text messages, 28 (laughs) emails, and all these uninteresting alerts. I delete most of them, and then I maybe respond to one or two, and then I go back into airplane mode for another four or five hours. I've actually done a study on this with a a productivity author, and we found, for those listening that are in a corporate job that are like, oh, well, he doesn't get me. Like, I got so many emails for work, and I got so many, like, social media things I got to respond to. What I say to them is, I've done a study on this. And it turns out the two best hours of the day to check email, and I know I've taken social media and gone to email, but it's kind of related, is 9 to 10 a.m. and 4 to 5 p.m. And the reason is because you're still giving yourself two full hours of email a day, which is a lot. And the second reason is because you then shut off your email from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and you create a six-hour deep work oasis Mm -hmm. in the middle of your day. And that, you'll notice, will become massively productive. When they look at the devastating effects of email and social media on our productivity, what they see is people check them like like 
15 times an hour, mm-hmm. you know, or something crazy, like maybe even more than that. So that you're, you're, of course you can't do any deep work if you only focus on it for three minutes. You know, mm-hmm. if you have, if I, if I have three minutes to write an article, right. then it will Impossible. take me, a, it'll take me a week to write the article. If I give myself four hours, I will write two articles in that four hours. Mm-hmm. I have no interruptions. And so anyway, this is all relating to chapter eight of my book, which is called Go Untouchable. In mm-hmm. that chapter, I specifically preach about the untethering that we need to do in order to grow our resilience. And I do this one day a week, David, where I actually have no contact with my wife, my kids, my family, nothing, like no internet, no phone, nothing. One day a week, I go completely untouchable. Mm-hmm. And you will not be surprised to find those are the days of my deepest creativity, my strongest writing, and like all good ideas, everything good I do comes from those one day a week. Mm-hmm. One of the things that um, I'm not sure you touch on in your book, but I've interviewed several women on the, the this topic of resilience. And one of the things that they point out is that resilience isn't something you develop in the midst of a challenging time. It's something that you develop almost like a bank where you're storing up this resilience inside of you every day so that when there's a challenging experience, you have that to draw upon. Um, and I'm seeing that um, these secrets, these tools that you're giving us are things that um, they're everyday tools. You know what I mean? They're, they're yeah. things that you can live out each and every day, not just in the midst of a challenge. Right. Like, they take, like for example, we were just talking about lose more to win more. And if you read the last part of that chapter, it's like go to parties where you don't know anybody. Set up a failure budget where you can experiment with trying new things. Count your losses, not just your blessings. Like my takeaways are simple, simple behavior changes, but they're just things we don't normally do. We hide our, we hide our losses. We don't go to parties where we don't know anybody because we're afraid that we're, we'll be a loser. We don't have a failure budget. So when you want to try that new cooking class or go to that music festival in the different genre, you don't do it because you can't mentally justify spending money on something you might not like whereas i'm mm-hmm. saying no no go to spanish classes or whatever that's a canadian reference because no one here knows spanish or hardly <laughs> anywhere you guys is the opposite go to a french class that's what we all get taught in our schools mm-hmm. and and then try it because that's worth it to, to learn it and yes my models are simple my takeaways are light but they are also the most actionable and accessible way i could get still these things down in terms of this idea that you said that these women that you interviewed shared about building it up over time like a bank a word popped up in my research that I put into this book called hypertrophy. I don't know if you've ever heard of that word before. Most people haven't. Do you know what I'm talking about, Dave? I have not. No, it was, okay, it was, so it was you, not familiar okay. with me. So do you ever do like weightlifting of any kind? Yes. Okay. So what's the next you Like, I don't know, bicep curl? Uh, yes, sure. Okay. So you grab a weight. Say you grab, let's say you grab a 40 pound weight or something. Okay. I'll grab a 15 pound for myself. And what you do is you curl your hand up. And your bicep flexes and you curl it down. You might do it 12 times. The next day, if you did a heavy enough weight or you did enough reps, maybe your bicep tingles a bit. You almost feel like a little burn in it. It turns out what's actually happened in your muscle is something called hypertrophy, meaning that you have worked out that muscle enough that you have created tiny micro traumas in your muscle. They're little rips, actually, almost like tiny little shreds of a piece of paper. Then the next day, what you're actually feeling in the burn is that muscle healing itself. And guess what? When it heals itself, that's when it gets stronger. Mm -hmm. The muscle actually grows in size through the process of tiny little rips. It's kind of, it gives new meaning to the word shredded, I always Mm -hmm. think. Mm 
Mm-hmm. You know, he's shredded. It's like, well, actually, yeah, literally, literally he has shredded his muscles so that they have regrown to be bigger. That, that's a physical metaphor for what I'm preaching in this book, which is the sort, sort of psychological metaphor of giving yourself failure budgets, failure allowances, counting your traumas, counting your loss, because all of those things that, that gave you challenge are things that you get through. To some mm-hmm. extent, the old adage, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, mm-hmm. actually is correct. People always say, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. If I lose my arm in a, in a welding accident, like I'm no stronger for that. Well, actually, <laughs> there, is, there are studies that show that you are stronger. after. Like, they've even compared paraplegics to lottery winners and found that a year later, oftentimes the paraplegics are even happier. Mm-hmm. You know, because they have a new appreciation for their sense of life, whereas the lottery winners have all kinds of new expenses and all kinds of tortured personal relationships. Sure, sure. You know, and, and I, I know I went on a bit of a rant there. My, my point is hypertrophy is the process of breaking something down so it can be rebuilt to be stronger. Mm-hmm. Similar to the goodwill metaphor, it's could you break down or give yourself new hobbies, new experiments, put yourself in unusual situations, make yourself try something that is out of your comfort zone. Take the scuba diving class that you want to be taking. Don't think about it. Put yourself in situations where your learning rate is the steepest, which of course is at the most at the earliest stage. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question for you, Neil. If somebody's struggling with a situation in their life right now, feeling down, feeling like this could be the period, right? What would you want to say to them in this moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah, first of all, like the biggest thing is just forget the book that I'm talking about today and forget like life. Let's just be humans. Let's just say like, hang in there, hang in there, hang in there. That's the biggest thing I would say. Cause we know from a lot of research, we know things often do get better. If you can hang in there through the hardest time, then I'd say seek out support. Uh, for me, therapy was extremely helpful. As I was going through my divorce, I ended up seeing a therapist twice a week. I'm down to like once every three months today. But like at the time, I was twice a week. I would go in for hour-long sessions. I basically bounced off the walls in jubilation because I'd been processing all these dark and heavy thoughts. Mm. Do you have a therapeutic... And it can't be your mom or your best friend. I mean, it has to be a trained and licensed therapist that can listen to you and help you navigate those really complex emotions in order to pull them out of you and help you feel safe and strong and get better. And, and no offense to the mom or the friend, because of course they can be helpful, but I just mean, can you try to get some sort of therapy? And then I would say in some way, shape or fashion, you need to talk about it yourself. So for me, that was my blog, 1000awesomethings.com. It became a form of journaling that that proved very therapeutic. For other people, it could be an actual journal that they keep beside their bedside table. They write in. Um, there's a there's a journaling subscription service that I that is totally free that I use myself and I love this and I don't have affiliation with them, but it's called Ah Life. A H H L I F E dot com. Awlife.com. Do you know about it? I don't know. Oh, okay. So you basically go to this website and you sign up. And for me, I set it as like Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 9 p.m. But of course, you can do any frequency you want. And then it prompts you over email to write a little journal entry. And it prompts you with a former journal entry that you wrote. So mm-hmm. as you keep responding, your journal prompts get richer and richer. And of course, because it's in your email, which is something that we're all addicted to, you simply see it and you reply one sentence, 10 sentences, an essay, whatever you want. Mm. That therapeutic practice of journaling could not be made more simpler through this. And um, it becomes a little interjection 
uh, and a little outlet for you to process yourself. That's so cool. in summary, hang in there. Okay. That's the add the dot, dot, dot. Then find a therapist or somebody that is a professional that you can talk to. Okay. You need, you need that. And then third, you need to process it yourself. My example was my blog, but could you start a journal or use an online service or something that helps you put your thoughts someplace that you can start to work them out of your system? That's great. That's rich. All right. So uh, I really do want to encourage everybody to get this book. It is really um, in, in a great read. It's a quick read. And there are so many actionable insights. Every one of the chapters, the, these nine secrets are wonderful. So you've got access to Kindle, audiobook, hardcover, even an audio CD on Amazon. It's called You Are Awesome, How to Navigate, Change, Wrestle with Failure, and Live an Intentional Life. And the link to that is in the show notes, which you can just find by swiping up on your phone. And all of Neil's links will be in our show notes as well. Neil Pasricha is uh, his username on all the social platforms. He won't respond to you, but you can go there and see what he's up to. Uh, <laughs> that might not be true. Maybe you will. Well, respond to I get an email once a week with all the messages that are left for me and I answer all of them in that once a week outlet over email. <laughs> I do, I do answer them, but no, I don't go checking it every day. <laughs> and, uh, he's got a number of websites, uh, globalhappiness.org, 1000awesomethings.com, which you are still posting. Uh, now you've gone beyond a thousand and now you're doing a thousand more. And, uh, he has a, a podcast called ebooks.co. No, not ebooks, three books. My apologies, three books.co. And um, he interviews people about the three books that have impacted their life. So, Neil, um, we'll put all those links in the show notes. And I just really appreciate you taking the time to share about your book. And we'll keep encouraging people to buy it when it comes out on November 5th, 2019. More than buying the book, I just really appreciate the connection, the conversation about resilience. And thank you so much for the work you're doing, David. Thanks for having me. Neil Pasricha is truly awesome. And so is his latest book. I want to encourage you to purchase You Are Awesome by clicking on the link in the show notes. You can get that by swiping up on your phone now or going to our website, insporising.com. If you found this interview to be helpful or think it would be encouraging for a friend, be sure to share it with them. That's the only way that people find out about podcasts is just by telling them. So take a screenshot on your phone and text this episode to them. Tell them to listen to Neil Pasricha on the Inspiration Rising podcast. They can find it on the Apple or Google podcast app that's probably already loaded on their phone, or you can listen to it on Spotify or Stitcher as well. All right, until next time, have a wonderful week.